Uh, welcome to the Stays Square Conversations. Yet again, my name is Inesipa Maninjwa, and this time we're chatting to Zianda Sternman, another book author, and I will allow her to introduce herself. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, uh, Sinisipo. Uh, my name is Zianda Stierman. Um, I have a background in political science and international relations. Um, I'm from Cape Town um, and grew up between Georgia and Cape Town um, in the Western Cape. Um, I have a huge interest in security studies issues, um, migration issues and labor rights issues um, and I've, over the past couple of years, uh, focused in quite a bit on policing um, issues in South Africa, because I think that there's a myriad of issues um, around just that one policy area. Um, and I, I also believe that not enough South Africans are sort of well aware of what's happening um, and therefore aren't, I think, sort of mobilizing behind the correct um, solutions, um, you know, to lead us out of our policing crisis. So, yeah, that's me. All right. Thank you for the introduction. Um, just in case you weren't aware, I started following you last year, actually. I think it was towards the beginning of lockdown when you did a thread mm -hmm. on, um, I think just before the lockdown, when um, the Western Cape government was looking to deploy the military into the Cape Flats and you wrote a thread on um, the dangers of that, specifically with terms of policing. Um, in our country. And I will say, I never thought much of policing. Mm -hmm. I, I'm going to be honest. I actually never thought much of a policing and the heavy politicization mm -hmm. of the policing system in South Africa. So what actually inspired the book? I understand it was part of a research project that you were doing that's now yeah. metamorphosized, metamorphosized into a book. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, I I really sort of uh, started looking at policing and security issues um, very seriously in about 2013 in my first um, uh, job as a political risk analyst uh, for a private firm. Um, and in sort of 2012, uh, 2013, there was, you know, according to even crime uh, statistics, there were over 12,000 protests um, recorded around the country um, is, you know, it's fairly uneven in the way that the, that police recorded it. But, you know, all of the um, all of the service delivery protests that we hear about often in the traffic reports, right, saying don't take the R300, it's backed up because of protest action, et cetera, et cetera. Um, in that year, there were about 12,000 uh, same or similar incidents recorded, um, you know, across the country. And that obviously triggered a, a, um, an interest um, from my side in, in trying to understand why on earth is that happening? Why, um, why is it happening with such regularity? Um, and over the years, obviously, it's, it's sort of waxed and waned and there hasn't necessarily been a number that high. But I think we all know as ordinary South Africans kind of moving around our country every day that, um, you know, that protests and, and incidents that bring the police and uh, ordinary people into contact with each other um, quite often, um, happens quite often uh, and, and daily, honestly. Um, and so in that sense, when I was looking to do a master's degree, um, this was about 2016, 2017, um, that, that same research topic sort of came to mind again. Um, and it morphed slightly into um, what I thought was um, at that point already a, a kind of dangerous militarization of policing and the way that the police um, uh, interact with the public. Um, a lot of that was also inspired by Badagana um, and everything that we saw that happened there. Um, and so essentially I wrote my, my first master's thesis um, on police militarization in Brazil and in South Africa, because um, Brazil is far more advanced um, in terms of, of the military in that sense. So, um, yeah, and, and, and the book has come from exactly that. Um, like you were saying, you know, people not necessarily thinking about policing, um, but I feel like me thinking about it too much. <laughs> and, uh, and so, uh, uh, you know, trying to, trying to piece together the book and trying to bring together, um, I think, a lot of issues both in academia, but um, in what we see kind of day to day and trying to translate that for people into a cogent um, narrative and, and sort of story explaining policing. Mm. Thank you for actually putting it that way. Um, I think, let me take a step back. And I think the word that, because we've, we've seen a lot of people uh, write threads on Twitter about South Africans are not angry enough. 12,000, 12,000. Yeah. 
I knew what I knew there were ones every week. I did not know mm. it was 12,000. Mm. I did not know this is a that was a new fact. This is a new fact for me. And it just shows who is protesting. Mm-hmm. Those who are unseen. Because exactly. the ones that 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 come across, I think my my point of reference are the ones, like you said, traffic report. Mm-hmm. Traffic report, they're like, don't take the N4, there's things happening, don't take. That's, I think, my awareness comes from. And, of course, you saw, I think we saw with, in each time there's been protests, there has been a mirror of violence in terms of how our police handle protests. I think, I don't know mm-hmm. what causes them to be so violent. And I think one of the images... I think we'll, we'll discuss further on. One of the images that stuck with me in Fismas 4 was when the white kids figured out the police wouldn't hurt them. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It, it and, shocked and, me. It, yeah, continue. <laughs> and I mean, that, that has a long-standing history, right? That, that, that comes from somewhere. Um, and that really comes from this like extremely deep-rooted um, difference in policing according to skin color and according to, um, to location and according to, um, uh, social, socioeconomics and social dynamic issues. Um, I mean, I, I've spoken to people quite recently about this, um, and, and quite a lot, but it, <laughs> the lockdown sort of really showed us that there's two different types of policing that exist in South Africa, one for white people, um, and one for, for black colored, um, Black and colored and Indian people, and especially um, poor people. Um, you know, I always make reference of uh, Senegal. Um, you know, where there where there were protesters, uh, or there were farmers who were protesting, um, and and Musenberg at the beaches. Um, you know, people protesting against lockdown, and in Brackenfell in Cape Town. Um, you know, at school. Uh, where teachers were accused of racism in all of those scenarios, because they were majority white um, uh, sort of groups of people protesting, you saw a completely different police reaction than you would in Alexandria or in Kailicha or anywhere else, um, you know, where it's predominantly poor and black people who are there. Um, and similarly, again, like you say, in real time, uh, white and black students in Fees Must Fall figured out exactly that, that the police treat white people differently than they treat um, black and especially poor people. And so, you know, there's, there's a reaction and there's a way to, to sort of manipulate that um, sort of reaction from the police. Hmm. Yeah, I think it's actually very important. Um, I will say in lockdown, so just disclosure, I, I, I live in the Santa neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I didn't see a single police. I've been hearing that they, I've seen the military, I've been seeing them, I've seen them on ENCA. That is mm-hmm. as far as I've seen the whole lockdown, uh, even from last year to now, uh, the only thing they stop us for is drunk driving. That's mm-hmm. all. That's mm-hmm. all. But that's the normal JMPD. There's no, like, the, the scenes I saw, I actually only see them on TV. And that's mm. just being honest. I only see them on TV. I'm like, I bore. Because even last year, people were doing walks, level five. Mm-hmm. They were walking their dogs. Yeah, my people here, my shame, my neighbors were, were 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 walking. They were gathering, but was life no was still very much the same for them, right? So yes. it's 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 something that a, a writer um, named Tony Samara as well um, summarizes really really well. Um, and this was, you know, this was in a book that was written way before long, uh, lockdown, but it speaks to the nature of, of policing and particularly um, in South Africa's cities. But to a large extent, policing then becomes about social control, um, where people who are in middle class neighborhoods, who are in leafier, nicer areas of the city are left to their own devices, um, you know, and, and they can call the police when they want and the police will arrive. But if you're somebody who's out in a, in a rural area, if you're out in a poor area, if you're out in a township, um, you know, d- the police exist there to socially control your movement. And so that's exactly what we saw in lockdown, that somehow there's this pre- preposterous idea, um, you know, that, that people who are in poor communities are not going to follow the lockdown regulations. And so we need to push the, the police and the military into those neighborhoods to forcefully make them um, comply and follow with the rules. And the thing is that I understand that there's, you know, of course, a distinction between people who are in informal economies and so who need to leave, um, you know, their, their homes in order to, to make money or to bring some kind of money in for their, for their families. And that's why, again, um, you know, all the COVID distress, distress grants um, were so important because it actually allowed people to stay at home and allowed people um, uh, to follow the rules in that sense. 
But we also saw, um, you know, again, where particularly in the early sort of lockdown where food parcels weren't reaching people, that people had to go out and protest for that, um, you know, whether it was because politicians were hoarding the food parcels or they were saying, we'll only give them to ANC members or we'll only give them to uh, a member of this party or that, um, you know, that, that's another issue that also needs to be addressed, but needs to be addressed without policing. The police are the wrong response in, in many of those cases um, to what's happening in neighborhoods. And, and, you know, being a resident of Cape Town and, and uh, having grown up in Guguletu, but now living in Seapoint, I mean, I talk in the book about how I experienced a completely different uh, nature of policing than I did um, uh, in, those, in those two different neighborhoods. Um, so in that sense, I, I think all of that and that history speaks to, and I think what, what the pandemic did was bring all of that into sharp focus, that there really is two systems of policing um, and two ways of policing people dependent on their skin color, on their neighborhood, on their class position, et cetera, et cetera. No, I completely agree. I always explain to people, like I am two Ks away from Douglas Dale police station. I've never seen a police officer in all, and I'm two kilometers. I've only gone there once when I needed to certify a document. That's mm-hmm. it. I needed, I needed, um, that was the, my one time, my one experience of them. And that is just about it. Um, um, I think one of the things that this book asks and I, I'm perplexed to find out. We go in, let's take it back. We're in 1994, um, uh-huh. new, new political movement, 1995. Uh, we have the Freedom Charter. We have all these laws. Why wasn't there a consideration in terms of, this is the same police force. Uh-huh. Why wasn't there thoughts about, okay, let's, is the is the police is the policing needed to change? Why do you think there wasn't? Because I don't distinctly remember any any movement to, um, to reconfigure the way policing is done in the new dispensation. So yeah. all other sectors of economy have had transformation agendas, mm. except for this one. The, that was I actually mean, one of the yeah. So interestingly, um, you know, I was five years old in 1994, so I don't have a, a sort of vivid memory um, uh, of, of the, I guess, political discourse and, and conversation at the time. Um, but I do think that there was some consideration of it. Um, I think that, um, you know, I say it uh, quite often that it, it also sort of happened with the prison system um, because of our, a lot of our political leaders had very intimate knowledge of the prison system, having been held in detention themselves um, and very intimate knowledge of, of the policing system, you know, uh, having been harassed by the police for um, a very long time. And so I do think that there was that understanding that the, that the police system, um, you know, needs to change into a police service that responds to communities, that has human rights at the heart of it, that is community oriented. But the problem is that, you know, you in that moment, um, but there was also a lot going on, just a, a lot. The, the electricity needed to be rolled out and basic infrastructure needed to be rolled out and schools needed to be desegregated, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it, I, I think that there was some focus and some understanding that policing needs to change. But I think that there was also a, a tragic misunderstanding and, and underestimation of just how difficult it is to change an institution that was at that point, you know, the, the police service didn't start in 1949 when uh, the NP government came into power. It started way back in 1913 um, when Proclamation 18 uh, created mm-hmm. the first unitary police force. And long before that, even during colonialism, um, you know, when, when different uh, colonial administrations had some form of police force that they organized around. And I think that there, unfortunately, there really just was an underestimation of how much work uh, would be needed to systematically and structurally transform the police service. At the very same time, you also had a police service that now had to serve the entire country and not just the white minority. Um, and, and that's when you saw a spike in, in um, crime levels um, and, a, and just a rise uh, in, in the general sort of level of crime um, as people were, were more able to freely move around the country as our borders opened. That's an incredibly important um, factor that's led to the rise of, of gangsterism, um, especially um, across large, large parts of the country. So you had all of these issues 
coming together in this incredibly wicked brew of, of problems all at once. Um, and unfortunately, you know, policing then becomes uh, both that thing that you pay less attention to, but at the same time, when, when, when trouble really starts to sort of bubble up and crime levels go higher, you then say, well, the approach that we tried isn't working. And so we need to, you know, make sure that, that criminals understand that um, it's, it's the holidays over for them or uh, the sort of tough on talk, uh, sorry, tough on crime talk um, coming really from the top. Um, and I mean, I will say it, I, I mentioned in the book as well that um, I can't remember the exact date, but Nelson Mandela himself, uh, you know, went out of his way uh, during a speech in Parliament to reassure the police and to reassure the country that there wasn't going to be any sort of witch hunt, um, you know, for ordinary police officers. And I genuinely think that that was the wrong move. Um, obviously, I have the benefit of hindsight, but, you know, when, when you frame police accountability, when you frame the sort of restructure that we needed as a witch hunt, um, I think that, that you then sort of doom <laughs> the processes that were, that were necessary um, uh, at the time, because it, it wasn't a witch hunt and it wouldn't have been a witch hunt. It was an organized process to transform an institution that was really responsible for so much violence. Um, and uh, yeah, that just, that, that didn't happen. And we're still seeing the after effects of that, um, mm. you know, all these years later. Let's do a compare and contrast. The U.S. is actually having the same exact argument. Is it a witch hunt? Right. Using the same exact wording. Um, I noticed it because during the last U.S. elections, um, mm -hmm. my point is watching Fox News. Like I thoroughly, <laughs> I, I thoroughly dig Fox News I, I, for entertainment value. Is is sick of uh, they really get to me? They're like ordinary police officers are under attack <laughs> by the media, by the and these ter these organizations like Black Lives Matters. We stand behind the black and blue. Love it. Mm -hmm. Literally my porn. <laughs> Literally my porn. Um, this is the same argument being made in the United States in terms of police accountability for mm. their violence. Mm. And it's and it's and it's been driven um primarily not just the Black um Lives Matter movement. So I, I noticed there was a nexus. So as the Black Lives Movement was gaining um trajectory in, I think, your mainstream media. People, mm. Activists who've been doing work on the abolishment of police started mm. adding volume and they were like, this is why it should be abolished. Because one of the things I was actually surprised to find out was the amount of work that on the ground activists have been doing and researching in terms of what levels of accountability is there and what sort mm. of um, what, what, what sort of pushback they've received because it's it, 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 it there's, there's a perception that there is an attack on the police are there to keep you safe, mm. but what if they are the ones that you should fear? Mm -hmm. And how do you manage that when there it, there's an entire institution and government and capital behind it? It's all the layers literally behind it. So how mm -hmm. do you start having that conversation? Because I'm a believer in accountability, but then. The, the, the nature of how accountability works in an institution is that the institution ends up investigating itself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, I mean, yeah. I, I think that's such a good point. And, and um, uh, I think so much of our imagination uh, around the world, not just South Africa, but so much of our imagination has been sort of captured by um, uh, both the Black Lives Matter um, movement um, and all of its different form and over the years, um, but also... In, in exactly what you're saying, the sort of nascent movement um, for defunding the police, but also prison abolition um, that has been around for a really long time and all of those forces sort of coming together. Um, I think that what, what sort of, you know, the Fox News types, the, the um, advocates for, for the police, um, but sort of blindly advocating for the police, what they don't understand is that, you know, you, you, you simply cannot have a police institution or force or service that exists that is wholly unaccountable to anybody. Um, you know, in, in political science, um, there's a, there's a Weberian theory of the legitimacy of uh, state force that only the state, um, you know, has the, has a legitimate use of force um, in order to uh, enforce the rule of law 
um, and in order to, to keep sort of citizens in line, um, but not to do so, obviously, at, in a way that, that oppresses them or that um, robs them of their human rights. And so if you have that concept and if you have people buying into that concept and saying we consent to being policed, the police then can't turn around and break you know, people's trust and also um, routinely murder um, uh, unarmed people um, or go into situations and kill and shoot and maim people. And that's where that accountability factor comes in. Um, and it's really interesting because in, in, the, in the sort of American system, a lot of that is very internal, right? It's, it's police unions, it's police officers themselves, and to some extent, politicians who shield um, police officers who have done wrong. Um, and that's who the Black Lives Matter movement is pushing back against um, and saying that we're not going to give you more money. We're not going to, um, you know, allow you to use the law to, to, to protect yourselves anymore. Um, and in the South African sense, it's the police institution itself as well, sort of internalized in the sense that, um, you know, IPID, uh, which is the Independent Police Investigative Directorate, is wildly underfunded, completely overwhelmed in terms of the number of complaints that, that ordinary people um, lay against the police. Um, and they're, you know, underfunded and they at the same time report back to the police minister, the same, you know, operation <laughs> that they're supposed to be overseeing and being the watchdog of. Um, and so in that sense, you have a, an institution that keeps sort of it's sort of lurching from crisis to crisis, especially in in um, the lack of accountability for police officers, but saying at the same time, everything's fine. The system is working. You should still report to IPID. Um, and uh, I mean, uh, again, I, I speak about it in the book, but, you know, Peggy uh, Kele or Minister Kele um, a couple of months ago towards the end of 2020 launched a hotline and said, you know, anybody who's abused by a police officer needs to phone this number and lay a complaint. First of all, IPED can't investigate all of those complaints. It's not within their mandate. Um, secondly, again, completely and utterly overwhelmed and underfunded. And so when you add a hotline and make it easier for people to report, but, but you know, dedicate absolutely no new resources um, to actually investigating those complaints, what's the use? Yes, <laughs> you're sort of creating a, a you know, what, what are those boxes called? Like a complaints box where you kind of put something in there and it disappears forever um, and you don't hear anything about that. So you have the you have this these two examples of police forces and uh, um, uh, institutions that want to cosplay um, accountability and that want to signal to people that we're being accountable, but they're not doing so at all. Um, and I think that. If, if we want to get anywhere close to police services where, where community members trust the police um, and that they view them differently, then accountability is one of the many steps on that, on that road, but an incredibly important one. I love how you say accountability because I think that's always for me what's missing. What's missing. Um, um, I think growing up, I've always feared police, um, feared police because I just have a natural paranoia towards anyone who has a gun. That's actually the right. sole, sole reason I don't like guns. I'm glad mm. we're doing law where people do not have guns. I do not know why you need to have a gun. Someone's like, you need to protect yourself. I was like, no, you don't. Number one, the gun is more likely used to be used to kill you than anything else statistically. So I don't, I can never mm. understand that argument. I can never understand that argument. So I've always had a certain fear because I'm like, this person can kill me. That's also the fear. And the older I've become, and I think the more I've been aware the last, I think, couple of years is that they could kill me and could get away with it and no one mm, would be the wiser. an island yeah but like no one would be the wiser because when I started investigating um the amount of payouts they do pay mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the amount of payouts uh the ineptitude of iPad so uh, sometimes I'm like lack of funding by iPad lack of funding to iPad is a choice Mm -hmm. I always consider these things political worlds. I'm like, if there's a world, there's a way. You know mm -hmm. what? Because one of the things I always go back to from a reference perspective is that in 2010, when we had the World Cup here, crime went significantly down. There was no institute of, it wasn't violent policing. We all just needed visible, mm -hmm. the appearance. It worked, yeah. World Cup. So I was like, the World Cup model worked. I did not understand why they couldn't maintain it. It worked very incredibly well. I think there's not a single person in 2010 who didn't agree that the World Cup model works. So the ability to police and to do so in a way that 
doesn't end up killing people is within their capability. Why they choose not to do yeah. it is, some, is one of the things I don't understand. I think it's also because the world was watching and everyone put the fear of God and don't mess this up for us. Do not mess this up for us in terms of everyone. What I want to focus on is um, the reason why I followed you, the gangs, the gang situations. Mm-hmm. I noticed you mentioned my hometown, Kabecha. Mm-hmm. I don't know our gang problem was this deep. This was <laughs> the gangs. Yeah. Our gang problem was this deep. What do you think in terms of, what would what you think were some of the reasons why they wanted to add the military yeah. to the gangs? I didn't see that. I didn't see that being a solution though, but I, I don't understand why they thought that, that would be a solution. I don't understand. So I'm, I'm not convinced that uh, the politicians and police leaders themselves believe that the military is a solution. I think that they believe that it's a, it's a show of force and it's political and security theater, but it's not a solution. Um, and I, and you know, in no way do I think that, um, that multiple police ministers over the years, um, have looked at the at the military as a solution. I think that that we are in this very sort of dangerous cycle of rinse repeat, um, rinse and repeat essentially. In terms of of saying when there is public outrage and when people are paying attention, um, you know, to the to the spike in gang murders and violent crime, as there was in early uh, 2019, which you know, which then sparked. Um, uh, the president sending the military into the Cape Flats. We're now we're getting into that pattern where we're going to where we're doing that and sending in the military and trying things that are that don't work and that are not long term solutions over and over and over again. Um, it's something again that I detail in the book, but this isn't the first time that the military has been uh, deployed out to the Cape Flats. It happened in 2011 in uh, Bishop's Levis, if I'm not mistaken. Happened again in 2015 as part of Operation Fiela. And now it happened again in 2019. And in every single one of those circumstances, we saw crime levels and murder rates go down for a while because also the gangs themselves, I mean, they're not stupid. You know, criminal organizations um, can be incredibly sophisticated. Um, and some of them in Cape Town are exactly that. And so they know how to lay low. They know how to sort of work um, around the military presence. Um, and they know that all of these measures are temporary. Um, and uh, again, we're not the first country to, who has tried this quote unquote solution and it's failed. It's happened in the Philippines. It's happened in Mexico. It's happened in Brazil. Um, you know, multiple other countries around the world also struggle with high levels of gang violence um, and, and uh, violence that's sort of connected to drug networks. Um, and trying to call in the police and not having long term solutions and investing in those long term solutions is only ever going to get us back into a cycle again of you know, two to three to four years down the line, the military will be called again to do the same kind of work that they did in 2011 and 2015 and 2019. Um, so I, I, I'm certainly not of the notion that the police um, uh, or politicians believe that uh, the military works, but they are not willing to invest in long-term solutions um, or it's, it's more of a political incentive for them to blame each other, which is something that happens very, very often. So, you know, you have... Um, uh, the mayor of Cape Town and the the uh, MAKO member for community safety um, sort of pointing fingers and saying, well, SAPS is a national competency. There's nothing that we can do. You know, we can't get involved. You have provincial SAPS saying that national SAPS is not giving them the resources. You have Begitele, um, you know, pointing a finger at the MEC for community safety, uh, Albert Fritz in the province and saying, you know, we're not getting cooperation here. Uh, honestly, I don't care. <laughs> As a resident of Cape Town, I don't care who you think is at fault. Do something. Come together and do something and stop using this moment as a as a um, as a place to to settle political scores or to try and point score, um, you know, and say to people, if you vote for this party, then, you know, we'll make sure that the police do X, Y and Z. You can do that now. <laughs> like you're in public office right now and you can come up with solutions um, right now. And and again, it, it, there's so many detailed um, uh, alternatives to deploying the military. There's psychosocial support um, that could be rolled out more comprehensively at, across communities struggling with gang violence. There's, you know, initiatives that that try to divert, um, especially young people when they come back from prison. If they've been in prison for a short stint in anything sort of related to, to gang membership, 
then try and divert them, you know, not into going back to gang membership, but actually into other productive activities that, you know, either offer them education or skills or employment opportunities, et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, there are programs that are out there and that exist that are trying to do the work of, of interrupting cycles of violence. And that's what we need to be investing in, not the 32 or 64 million rand that goes into every military deployment. Because mm. to my mind, that money could be used much, much better um, and, and in a way that doesn't involve the military. Mm. And I think that we've... We're just at this point, excuse me, unless we change it, we're stuck in a cycle um, of trying things that don't work. Do you think, and this is just my question, um, do you think they're aware of the solutions, those charged with leadership, that they are alternatives? Because because for for my for my understanding and also from just um, when you hear them talk, it's as if I was like, is this our, possibly our only solution? You have, is are they aware of theirs and, and other alternative thinking towards dealing with the issue of policing? Right. That's that's actually a really, really good question. Um, <laughs> I think that that both the, the Ministry of Police um, and the you know police department and um, SAPS itself at, at an operational level, I think. There, there certainly could be collaboration and more work done, you know, with social development um, and with health, for example, um, and with departments of housing, et cetera, on ways to reduce crime that have nothing to do with the police itself. Um, it's a shame and a pity to me that it, it feels like all of those uh, government departments aren't speaking to each other and aren't saying that, you know, there are ways to, um, to lower crime rates and violence rates. Uh, in communities that that lie outside of of SAPS's um, sort of mandate, but importantly, you know, sort of kind of work towards um, what we're talking about. So, in 2016, there was the uh, National Crime Prevention Strategy that was um, sort of updated and and uh, rewritten from an earlier uh, model in the late 90s or early 2000s. That speaks to exactly that. It speaks to root causes of intractable problems like um, gang violence, like gender-based violence as well, um, and other forms of crime and how to, how to sort of interrupt those cycles. Um, but I think that that was written for the police and kind of circulated amongst police and, and, uh, and operational, uh, at the operational level, but didn't necessarily filter down to the station level. And certainly, to my mind, didn't speak to all of these other you know, government departments that I've just mentioned and others. So you have, you know, the SAPs kind of working alone on policing um, in a way that doesn't make sense and that doesn't speak to other solutions that it could plug into and could be more well integrated um, uh, into that, you know, range from social development and education, health and et cetera. Um, so if, if I'd, I feel like if we were to get to a point where ordinary people understood that, that policing, you know, is only treats the symptoms of crime, but not the causes of crime, um, then I think we could get to a point where, where voters, um, who are the most important people to politicians, um, especially come election time, where voters could say to politicians, we're not interested in your policing solutions, we're interested in your crime prevention solutions, because those are not the same thing, right? That preventing crime is far more Complicated, yes, um, and and far-reaching, but it's far more of a long-term solution than just saying, "Well, we're going to deploy a hundred more police officers, um, or we're going to to give the police five more cars." Um, or, <laughs> as a as Cyril Ramaphosa um, did when he took uh, possession of five BMWs when Angela Merkel, um, you know, was in town, and said, "These BMWs are going to fight uh, gender-based violence." I mean. Come on. <laughs> so, so, so I'm just going to add a different element to this. So this mm. is me on the finance. I've always believed that our high rates of violence are in direct relationship to our high levels of poverty, to our high levels mm -hmm. of inequality. If you don't address that, mm -hmm. you get social ills, which is why the level of you add our complicated, violent history, you add all of those things. And even if you look at the countries you mentioned, um, you mentioned Brazil, Philippines, all of 
of them have exactly the same problems we do, which is high mm-hmm. inequality, um, high corruptible governments. We understand mm-hmm. that. We understand that. And you sort of see that, you sort of see that unless you address inequality and inequality can only be addressed, only be addressed it's the hard solution. I always say it is the mm. hardest solution. It is the hardest solution because inequality can only be addressed if people have access to work, but they also need mm-hmm. to have access to, unless you address Maslow's hierarchy of basic needs, mm-hmm. you will always have perpetual levels of violent crimes when it comes to, um, especially in areas of um, low income. So um, one of my cousin's friends is a police policeman in uh in your bright in your bright mm-hmm. and the things he tells me and are traumatic the things he's seen yeah. are, are, yeah. Are, are, are are traumatic not things that the police have done but what citizens have done to each it's other the, mm-hmm. like i think he just came and he was like and he just sat down and he was like uh, uh, <laughs> i think and i think the same betuna i always say the the the, the healthcare workers in bara see the worst mm. of the of worst what people do to, to each other to yeah. each other to each other mm-hmm. so what do you say in congruence to that because we understand that we need to address the social ills and that is the long term solution but what is the present day solution to stop i think and this is this is where I've been seeing a lot of the conversations on social media go into, go into, to stop the level of just pure violence, because we have to put the, we have to address the problem of today. We have to address the problems mm-hmm. of tomorrow and we have to address the problems of 10 years from now. I believe you, you should do that all simultaneously, but how mm-hmm. do you speak to someone who says, uh, we've had someone who just killed our entire family mm-hmm. just for a self. So, I mean, <clears throat> I think that that uh, our high levels of of violence, um, you know, again, that that we see today and we see um, amongst uh, communities and and between people, also have to do with um, centuries, really, of of intergenerational trauma, right? So if you have lived in communities and in neighborhoods where people routinely hurt each other in incredibly violent ways. Um, you know, whether they're drunk or not, or whether they're fighting over something or not, or um, whether it's a it's a, a sort of criminal act like a robbery, um, or whether two people have a dispute and they, um, you know, find that the best way or they think that the best way to solve it is to go after each other and, and sort of engage in violence. Those years and years and years of trauma, um, particularly also that where children grow up in those communities and only know, um, you know, those sort of responses. Um, uh, to arguments or to violence, that creates an incredibly, um, I think the only way really to describe it is sick. It's just very sick um, environment in which uh, people and women and children and generations grow up reliving the same sorts of traumas over and over and over again. Um, and I think that that's, that's specifically where, you know, exactly what, what you were mentioning, issues that are targeted at um, uh, ending and interrupting cycles of, of poverty and inequality come in uh, come into the story and come into the fold. Um, I think that that's also where, um, again, uh, proper sort of psychosocial support, especially for kids early on who, you know, live in, in homes where violence is the norm um, or who, who come from communities or, or circumstances where um, people are routinely violent towards each other. If they're able to get um, you know, support from a social worker, um, from counselors, from grief and trauma counselors. Um, that's that's the type of of sort of long term solutions that make a difference. That you know are the difference between somebody growing up in a violent home and then living in a violent home and perpetuating violence themselves. Um, Again, I'm no expert on this. Uh, it's definitely not my my kind of uh, bread and butter and everyday issue. Um, but if if we were working harder at treating the the root causes of where this violence and this um, uh, these sort of incredibly toxic displays um, of of whether it's masculinity or whether it's um, sort of identity and asserting themselves um, come from. And I think we could tackle multiple issues all at the same time. Everything from, you know, the, the violence of 
um, or violent homophobia that happens a lot in low-income communities to other um, expressions and, and manifestation of gender-based violence as well. Um, uh, you know, to just the, just the idea again that a, an argument can quickly escalate into murder um, or into grievous uh, bodily harm. Those, those are the type of things where, like you say, we're, we're trying to address, address issues that happened in the past that are happening today and will, um, will and could continue 10 years into the future. It's really, really hard work, but it's the type of work we genuinely need to start investing in. Um, and I think it's the type of work that is, that is and was present in a lot of other post-conflict uh, situations where I think it was more obvious when people were sort of fighting against each other um, you know, in civil war type of context, uh, context or, um, you know, in countries like Rwanda, for example. Um, but it's, it's not the type of thing that was on a wide scale, um, kind of rolled out in South Africa. And, and there was an understanding that, um, you know, my, my grandparents and my parents' generation, their traumas and their violence and the way that they solved things shouldn't be carried on into multiple generations in the future. Mm, no, I, I completely agree. Um, um, I think it's because part of the reason why I asked this question, I asked it and I framed it specifically that way was because I didn't grow up in violence, in mm-hmm. violence. I've never seen anything violent. I think my first introduction to violence was this year when I saw a domestic violence act and it, it traumatized me and I could not, I didn't sleep for weeks. Mm-hmm. And I'm in my thirties, just to understand, I live a very sheltered, right. it's, a, it's, it's part of being having grown up in a very sheltered very existence. And so for me, one of the things that I then asked myself was when I was trying to unpack this, even with my therapist, because I was, I was, I was flawed. I I just, Mm. I I, I don't, I don't understand how you can hit someone. Like it, it, Mm -hmm. it, 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 it's just, I've been angry, but it's just never, it, it doesn't occur to me the, the, I don't know the thinking. And when I think about the, I started thinking about what punishment I started thinking about was person, this is evil. You're evil. You belong in jail. You, and then I started reflecting after a while, I felt calmed mm-hmm. down and started doing my sentence and says, what type of society do I want to see? Mm-hmm. What type of society do I want to see? What type of rehabilitation we want to see? Because for me, I do believe in rehabilitation, mm-hmm. in rehabilitation. I do believe, but I also think that there needs to be environment conducive to rehabilitation. You can't rehabilitate a soul without changing their entire environment. Otherwise you can perpetuate the same cycles. And mm-hmm. that's what, and, and, and that, that's sort of my, my, my thinking towards specifically acts of gender-based violence in this country. And you, you sort of start thinking in terms of you've then add the fact that gender-based violence is very prevalent within policing, very mm-hmm. prevalent, mm-hmm. not gangsterism, yeah. not corruption, GB, gender-based violence, that's very prevalent, not gangsterism, corruption. At least there's money involved in those ones. This one is mm. just pure violence. And yeah. it starts becoming a circle of violence. The police are violent. The people are violent. Where do we, where do we go? Where do we go from here? Where do we go from here? And, and I think you do it. You, you think about, you actually think about some of these concepts in this. And I do believe in the all round solution, but, but where mm. do we go from here where we are? Is there any policy work that the government is doing to change their frame of reference? Because we're going to do a, we're going to do copy, copy paste. Mm-hmm. Is there any thoughts towards, repeat, yeah. to change this? Because I think that's where I think that, that there's going to be, it has to go to, there needs to be something else. There needs to be, they just, they, this, this cannot yeah. This cannot Continue. be. Yeah. Mm. I think, you know, interestingly, we, there's, you know, again, sort of multiple plans that are out there, but all of those plans live on paper. Um, mm. You know, I, I, as I mentioned earlier, the, Na- the National Crime Prevention Strategy, uh, you know, that was put together in 2016, the average person knows nothing about it. And also, I think the average police officer knows absolutely nothing about it because it's not mm. in their day-to-day work. It's not sort of mm. integrated into what they do and, and how mm. they see their job and, and, uh, and mm. their role in society in terms of a, a whole mm. of society change. Um, I, I think that there are also multiple examples of that in almost every government department um, where there are long-term solutions and there are long-term plans, but they live on paper. 
Um, and, you know, there's a process of gathering that research and, and that information, but nothing is ever actioned from it. Um, and I think that that's something that, that um, South African governance across the board um, really kind of, of suffers from. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll use a completely unrelated example, but I'll, I'll sort of get to the point later. Um, you know, if you look at, at, the, at our electricity crisis and that for years government has known that one of the solutions is opening up independent power producers so that ESCOM doesn't have a monopoly. Um, <laughs> exactly. That ESCOM doesn't have a monopoly and that, um, you know, we can open this up to, to other producers who can then um, essentially add to the power grid, uh, but also sell um, electricity uh, privately to people. And only just the other day, I mean, after what is it like 18 years um, at this point, no, 13 years of load shedding at this point, um, only just the other day, you know, the president comes up with this surprise and shock announcement, um, you know, of exactly that, of, of expanding independent power generation. And so I don't, I don't want to be in a space where, you know, if the, um, if the national crime prevention strategy, for example, or, or the white paper on, uh, on community safety, if those were released in 2016, I don't want to wait until what, 2029 <laughs> to see any of that sort of being, uh, put in place or any of that being given uh, the correct um, the correct kind of consideration and so I there's <laughs> there's a policy program quote unquote that government loves sort of going back to um, or, or referring to called back to basics which frustrates me so much <laughs> because everybody loves you know the rinse and repeat of well we need to go back to basics we need to go back to basics but then they never do they say they're going to but they never do um, and so I, I think if we're able to recapture that energy for me from 1994 of, you know, we need to uh, change the police service and we need to uh, make the police service responsive to communities. If we can go back to that and understanding that that's the real way that we solve our crime issue and not just trying to jail every single person, um, you know, who, who commits crime. Um, and again, in, in uh, particularly in the chapter on prisons in the book, I sort of speak about the fact that a large part of our prison population is not actually violent criminals. It's people who can't afford bail. Um, you know, it's people who are arrested for minor drug offenses. And that doesn't keep us safe. So the idea that if we build more prisons, if we put more people into prisons, if we, uh, you know, make sure that that more quote unquote bad guys are prosecuted, what that does without us deeply thinking about what we what we actually want to see at the end of that process. So if somebody is arrested, they're convicted of a crime and they're sent to prison, when they come out of prison on the other side, because they will, um, I think that there's uh, really a, a sort of delusion among some people that all bad people will go to prison and they'll stay there forever. Um, and even quote unquote bad people, you know, kind of what does that mean? But if we're not thinking long-term and thinking deeply about what that cycle perpetuates and who it puts into prison over and over and over again, we're not going to get very far. Um, and so I, I, I just, I really want people to step back for a second and, and think about what they could be doing at an individual level, um, you know, to try and root out crime and, and corruption amongst uh, the police force, what they're doing to support civil society that's working on long-term solutions, um, you know, how they're interrogating uh, even their local ward councillors in terms of what their views are on crime and and how to reduce it, then we're not going to get very far. If we just kind of think that um, if we leave policing to the police officers themselves or to the politicians, um, or that if we fire Begitzel and we get somebody else new, that things are going to change, that's that's not going to work. That's not a that's not a way forward, um, and it's certainly not not a way forward that understands everything that's that's happening uh, with crime and policing um, and violence. We've actually ran over time. We've actually been <laughs> so last last words. I actually wanted to continue this conversation. I should have actually made it longer. It is my fault. It is my fault because I've actually, <laughs> it is my fault. Don't worry. I will take complete blame. Um, Last words on prisoners getting vaccinated because this is mm. last words, last words. Because I've been seeing the ripple effect and all I could think to myself was prison is not a holiday. Mm. There's a reason why Jacob Zuma doesn't want to go. It's not a holiday. It's not a holiday. Right. This idea that it's a hotel, people need to stop with that. It's really not. So thoughts mm. on prisoners getting vaccinated before ordinary citizens or before taxpayers, because that's what's been. Yeah, <laughs> that's the yeah, that's the prevailing opinion. 
I mean, I really, we cannot overemphasize your point that prison is not a holiday. Prison is not a good place. It is, you know, if you read reports on, on what prisoners go through in, in Polesmore, for example, um, you know, high rates of, of sexual assault um, and the circulation of sexually transmitted diseases, there's, you know, because of the overcrowding in a lot of our prison uh, facilities, there's also high rates of leprosy. Um, and other, you know, other sort of ancient, bizarre diseases um, that really actually come into play because people are stuffed into very, very small places, um, you know, with each other and with infrastructure that's old or that's bad or that's, um, uh, you know, making them sick. Um, St. Albans Prison, just outside of Gabecha, um, for years had, a, had an issue with rabies because there were so many rats in the prison. So you essentially have these facilities where, you know, yes, people... And this is the thing that I think people don't understand is that just because you go to prison doesn't mean that you lose your your rights, right? Your your rights to freedom of movement, of course, is curtailed, and that's been um, uh, that's that's what prison uh, enforces or 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 limits. Um, but your right to healthcare doesn't disappear. Your right to um, life doesn't disappear. And so I think it's um, I think his name is uh, Simon Shear, somebody uh, I follow on Twitter. Um, you know, he's tweeted and made such a good point about the fact that even when you're in prison, the state also has a duty to make sure that that, you know, they reasonably um, keep you alive. And so that's why they have to vaccinate prisoners, um, particularly in facilities where they can't social distance and where disease already exists, um, you know, like TB and, uh, and leprosy and other um, uh, contagious diseases. So this idea that Prisoners are on holiday, they're getting three meals a day, they're getting to relax, they're getting to hang out, they're not going to get vaccinations before ordinary citizens. Well, that's also because to a certain extent, we can social distance and prisoners can't. Um, and, you know, they have the right to health care, they have the right to live. Um, and that's exactly what the state is, is enforcing and protecting by, um, you know, providing them vaccinations. I know we're frustrated that that the vaccine rollout hasn't been fast enough, but we cannot look at a situation like that and essentially wish death on those prisoners and say, we'll get to them when we get to them. That's not, you know, that's not the, the correct way to, to go about things. Mm. Thank you for that. I think we're literally at the end of our conversation. We've been going for over 15 minutes and <laughs> I thoroughly enjoyed your book. Um, please Get the book, guys. Can we be safe? Unexclusive books. It does have a 36-hour turnaround. I know this because I've tested it. I've tested it. <laughs> I've tested it. So I've actually managed to get it. Thank you. I I thoroughly enjoyed the conversation. It was very, it was a breath of fresh air to just, I think, engage in the concept of policing and putting humanity at the mm. core of it all, humanity. I think the word you used, community, at the, it's a service, community, mm. service. And I think I like that word. Anyway, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank yeah. you so much. I'm going to 